Ashley here, and welcome to Mentor Chat. This time, we're talking with Dr. Elizabeth Joy, the founder and CEO of Joy Society. Dr. Joy has a background in working within the mentoring movement, so we were all excited to reconnect. We were also very happy to hear that she recently completed her PhD and was willing to share all about her research and how it impacts the way we can support young people as well as the way they think about success. Let's go right into the conversation now. Good afternoon, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Joy. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Mentor Chat. This season, as we mentioned, we're talking about all things youth, mental health, and more. So we're thrilled to talk to you based on your expertise and fun fact, having had been an affiliate leader in the past. And we talked with our, or we shared with our listeners some episodes ago about what that mentor affiliate looks like and what you know affiliates do and kind of highlighted the work of other affiliates. But we're happy to have you here in your new role. So if you want to start off by officially introducing yourself, that would be wonderful. The hardest question. <laughs> what do you do? Who are you? Good God, it's too much. Uh, but thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. And as you know, I'm very passionate about youth mentoring and certainly very aware of the absolute meaningful outcomes that youth ment- mentoring yields. So um, so glad you're doing this and glad to have an opportunity to share and, and hopefully be able to provide some insight in a really unique way, hopefully. So in my current reality, Uh, I uh, still am wearing many hats, one uh, as the business owner of Joy Society Enterprises focused on disrupting professional development by addressing the intersection of work and all of those other areas of our lives that we tend to ignore, but tend to come for us. Uh, And we get reminded that we should not be ignoring them. Um, And tied with that, I do executive and elite performer coaching, where I just focus on supporting folks who are elite at their craft become elite at life. Again, for those very reasons that so often we focus on work and we get really good at that, but are not necessarily living our best lives otherwise. So I support folks in both addressing business-related strategies, but also the intersection of their personal realities and how that affects their their business decisions, um, and even the personal realities of those who work for them, right? So just kind of maneuvering all of that. Uh, lastly, among many other things, I also lead a group of Black CEOs in Columbus, the Columbus CEO Collective, where we're working to address the uh, racial wealth gap in in being able to increase um, wealth and um, better outcomes for the Black community. So I got lots going on. (laughs) I know when we talked initially about you being a guest and coming on, you had just completed your dissertation. Yes. And which was a really big deal. Congratulations again. Thank That's you. A, a lot of work. I hope you've had some time to <laughs> to breathe since then. But you had a really interesting research topic as well. And um, I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yes, uh, I'll try to contain myself. It's very exciting and inspiring. But I did a, a grounded theory study, which is uh that research methodology looks to develop a a theory to explain a phenomenon. And so I explored the 
impact of personal and non-work experiences on the career path success of elite performers. So I interviewed 13 elite performers, all of them at an annual income of 500,000 or more, many of them millionaires, and just sought to understand what were the personal and non-work life experiences that impacted that journey. And uh, I know you all were excited, and this is why it was so interesting that you all reached out when you did. All 13 of them told a story without being uh, sort of pushed in any one direction because we op- we asked very open-ended questions without guiding folks. Ultimately, they all told stories of having either traumatic or difficult life experiences early in life that in processing that experience, there was psychological threats sort of laced through that experience. And they concluded that performing at a high level at that time, either in school or in sports or in some activity, was one of the things that they could do and the primary thing they could do to mitigate that risk. Now, of course, this is not what they described to me, right? They're telling their story and I'm listening and hearing through the lens of being both an organizational psychologist and a licensed clinician. Uh, but but ultimately, that's the story that they told. And uh, obviously, we'll get into it as we talk today. But what they shared is Again, this way of coping at the time, it was coping with those threats by performing at a high level. And so when they shared their journey from there on, what I discovered and the the theory that I generated was success as a protective factor. So success or high performance, and again, this could be in cleaning my room really good so that my my mom or dad doesn't continue to, to, to come at me or threaten me in a certain way because a lot of them had very uh, demanding parents. It could be, again, showing up to sports in a really passionate and studied way and practicing a lot and all that. But ultimately, they were coping by essentially making sure that they weren't the focus of negative attention and or becoming the focus in a positive way, right? And so initially it was a coping mechanism, performing well, and it ultimately became success as a protective factor. And that was, again, the final theory that I developed. And what I ultimately discovered was that this became a lifestyle for these individuals. And so, you know, when you think about the highest level of leaders, business owners, entertainers that you see in the world today, the assumption is, you know, they've spent their whole lives working on this. This is what they always dreamed of doing. Actually, no one in my study is doing what they thought they'd do in the beginning. Um, But it really didn't matter for them what they did. They developed this drive and this, this insane commitment to performance as a protection. And again, that's why I came up with the theory success as a protective factor. So that's the super summary of the research. Thank you for sharing that. I find that to to be so intriguing, especially in relation to our work and thinking about pairing up young people with adults. And I don't know if the participants in your study share like what may have been helpful to them or how it may have translated in all of their relationships, like your theory uh, success as a protective factor. But do you have any, just based on your research, your your skills and expertise, 
Do you have, and thinking about adults working with young people, do you have any advice for mentors who may be working with young people who may see kind of, I guess, signs and symptoms of, I don't, I don't want to necessarily call it like overachievement, but a way is that that, that kind of go-getter mentality where it may be connected back to some traumatic experiences. Was that a clear question? Um, yes and no, but I have plenty of things I could probably say back to you <laughs> regardless. Uh, obviously, having uh, worked in that space, I mean, there's a lot of things and you'll have to like rein me in here. Uh, as far as thoughts I have, uh, one of them being, and, and obviously you know that I, I do trainings and, and coaching throughout the country on trauma-informed practices. And really that's what I've been doing in my works, you know, having uh, sort of stepped away mostly from the nonprofit world, although I do still do some keynotes and other things like that uh, within the nonprofit space. You know, the, the uh, trauma-informed, trauma-informed approaches are really important no matter where you are. And, and I would double click to say, I, I think we really need to get away from the term trauma informed because uh, A, the word trauma doesn't resonate for everyone. And I think that we miss folks when we use that word because we tend to think of really dramatic, crazy huh, kind of experiences when we say trauma. And so folks aren't necessarily registering, uh, you know, when I teach one of the first few slides in my presentations about trauma-informed mentoring, for example, is that trauma is defined by the person, right? But people tend to forget that, right? So we tend to assume it has to be some dramatic thing. And so I, I prefer to use the word difficult life experience because, or impactful life experience because it really, at the end of the day, we're impacted by every experience we have, be it positive a good thing that we just loved and enjoyed or a negative thing. And so I, so I would start by saying, I, I think we need to be thoughtful about that language because again, A, folks are missing out on realizing that this applies to them. And B, uh, it, it also tends to have anything other than a strength-based perspective uh, tied to it. Um, so that being said, when I think about what I saw among and, and that being said, too, the participants in my research, some of them used the word trauma and would absolutely say, I was living in trauma. Other folks, I would say, based on my expertise, it's probably trauma, but that's not a word they used. Either A, because they don't identify with it, or B, because every single one of these people lives a strengths-based life, right? They're not going to use that type of language because it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't have a narrative of strength and that's everything that they live. Right. Um, and some of them, it wasn't trauma, right? It was a difficult life experience. So again, many of them had hard driving parents. Where's the line between that being traumatic, maybe what you and I might qualify as traumatic and it just being really hard again, up to them. And so, and I think also when you, when you look at this, when you talk about early, difficult experiences early in life, 99% of the time, that is being, that experience is, is uh, including someone who they love, right? And so what I also saw is that folks really are negotiating how they even want to tell that story because you don't want to tell a story of someone you love in sort of this negative way, right? So if you're talking about your parent or your uncle or your cousin or whoever, 
certain language just feels a little harsh. Even if that person did some really, really hard stuff to them, that's not how they want to describe it because we don't want to throw this person in the trash, right? So again, this is why the language is so important. But each of these folks, I would say, and, 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 and I relate to really all of the outcomes of my study, I would say my trauma has been a gift. It is, it is what has driven the level of drive that I've had and ultimately the level of success that I live in today. And so I think that's one of the other big things that concerns me is that, especially in the nonprofit world where trauma-informed conversations are being had and people are leveraging the ACE study, the ACE study just tells this really sad story of how jacked up you're going to be when you get older because you had trauma as a child, right? And so I'm an example. I know that we know other stories of folks who have been overcomers, but even that overcoming type story tends to have people assume it's a, a once in a lifetime thing. There's only a couple of people who will overcome. And and my my presentation to you and those who are mentoring is that let's not assume that the trauma is all bad, right? Because what these folks essentially have shared, and again, it's my story too, is that they were able to respond to that trauma in a way that literally became the recipe for success for them. And, and that became a driver. Now we can get into the fact that the, there's also, there's a double-edged sword here in that, um, you know, folks, and, and again, this is me too, uh, having, having shown up so driven, there's, there's prices to pay, be it physical health, because you're not eating the way you should, you're not sleeping as much as you should, you're stressed out. There's plenty of research on difficult outcomes and not so great outcomes for CEOs and, you know, uh, high performing individuals. But again, we don't tell that story. Typically, when we're talking about youth, we just tell the story of you had a really bad life. And then um, you got into really bad things. And then you have terrible outcomes. Well, people who are living, quote unquote, good lives, whatever that even means, i.e. money and career are also having crap outcomes, right? Because it's not just about this one thing. And I think that's the crossover here when you think, you know, folks are probably thinking, what the heck does millionaires and businessmen have to do with youth and mentoring? It has everything to do with it. I think what we're proving here is that we can really start to look at humans as humans, which I'm a fan of. I believe in human, human centered approaches and really being able to see we're, we're really not that different. I think the difference here with this population and others, because I've spoken in almost every prison in the state, I've worked with sex offenders, rapists, you name it. They also have difficult backgrounds. What's the difference? The difference is how these folks responded to those difficult life experiences. And therefore they got some different outcomes. The other thing I would say that was one of the key woe moments that came out of this research. And also I identify with is that, not everybody used the A word, anger, but anger was very much at play and very much is still in play. And these folks, and I do it too, have, have learned how to leverage anger as a friend, as an asset. And I, when I think about mentoring and especially mentoring um, minority youth and specifically black youth who the stereotypical assumption 
that you're showing up angry and you're quote unquote acting out. And therefore we need to get that anger problem together. The world assumes that anger is just 100% this negative emotion. It's not anger. That's the problem. It's, it's how we use it. And these folks, some of them not willing to say it. Why? Because they're very aware of the societal assumptions about anger. When you say you're angry, people tend to assume you can't control yourself, right? You're out of control, you know, those kinds of things. But in fact, what they've been able to do is use anger, frustration, whatever word you want to plug to be a source of inspiration and motivation and, and strategically lean into moments of observing someone doubting them, um, of, of someone maybe disrespecting them or counting them out, whatever it is, as a key motivator to drive them. When they're too tired, they push through anyway. When um, they're feeling maybe down, they push through anyway, and they're actually leveraging that. And again, I use this, um, and, and I wasn't using this before. I went through a journey because I wasn't processing my anger well early on in life. Uh, got into some things in young adulthood. And so I worked on getting rid of my anger. And then in recent years, in the last five years or so, I realized I worked so hard at getting rid of my anger that I was missing the superpower that I had discovered it could be. It was more about let's make sure we use it right. And I think we do youth, uh, we do a disservice to youth by just throwing anger in like this negative space to say, you need to get rid of that. Well, you know, if you've been through hell, I would expect you should be upset and angry and pissed, right? So like, rather than say, let's not be angry, let's teach youth how to channel that anger. And I think when you look at sports, and I had several former NBA and NFL athletes, uh, specifically football, there's a space where many young youth have been able to act out their anger in a valid, a validated way, right? Because violence and physical contact is, is a sign of a skill set in that sport. And that has become, that's why you see sports being, I think, such a relief for youth. And so, but what about the youth who don't play sports? How can they get their anger out, right? In a way that allows them to leverage that energy because it's just energy. So let's leverage it. So again, I could go on and on, but those are some of the things that, that I think about Oh, and one more, and this is big for me. And, and even back when I was working as, as director of Mentor Central Ohio, you know, uh, one of the problems I have with youth workers, mentors, counselors, all the helping professions is that we're doing a lot of work to help everybody else, but we're not, we're not getting in the mirror to do our own work. And so uh, that would just be one other thing that I add is, is that I think in, in, in the in the space of supporting youth, we've got to do a lot more signing up to take our own medicine because we are really good at giving youth <laughs> all these instructions and all this guidance. But are we living out what it is that we're trying to teach them to live out? So I'll pause there and see what you all think about what I just shared. <laughs> Thanks for uh, sharing a little bit more about that. It's all really interesting. And I think it kind of flips a lot of what we know or think we know about trauma and how we look at it and how we help young people like cope. And I know you gave some of those like specific examples. 
in a little bit, I would love to like dig into that a little bit more if you'd sure. want to about how we do that. But first, I know um, you mentioned, I'm sure some people listening will pick up on it too, but this idea of trauma as like a gift or like in this, in your research, it was like a big um, factor in people's success. And so I am interested too in how you would respond to people who might take this and say, well, that means that you need to experience trauma or like it's um, like a requirement to be successful. Um, I think of like that tortured artist trope where like you have to, you have to um, have something seriously like wrong in your life or terrible experiences or in order to create great art. So, well, here's what I'll say to that. Again, this is where the definition of trauma and the misunderstanding of it will will have us lost. If you're alive, you've been through some stuff. You might not use the word trauma, but you done been through some stuff. But hell, the the process of being born is trauma, right? You're going, you are in a woman's body and you either come through a womb or you come out of of an incision. (laughs) That's trauma from the beginning, right? Um, Learning how to walk. Um, learning how to talk, you know, going through the transition from elementary to middle school, not being able to fit in at times. So we all have difficult life experiences. So that's what I would say to that. If you're alive, you know that life serves us lemons, as they say, right? So no one is running around out here without challenges in life, that they can leverage. So I would say it's not a requirement per se, because, and again, depends on how you see it, but, but it is, it can potentially be used as an asset. So A, we all have stuff. B, you don't need it. I mean, if you are someone who is able to find your way and find yourself inspired and, and, and be able to really leverage drive and motivation to get you there, without tapping the anger button, then then great. I think that's the whole point though, is that we have to, just like we're, we're starting to finally have conversations where we're not forcing upon youth to assume that they have to go to college to be successful as adults, we're saying there are multiple ways to get where you're going. So if you or someone like me who just apparently loves to run up your student loans by getting 50 million degrees, then go forth and be great, right? If you're my brother who went to college and dropped out, but ended up becoming a successful business owner, go forth and be great. If you're like my cousin who didn't go to school at all, but has had an amazing career as a, as a beautician, then go forth and be great. So I think this all comes down to We've got to be dynamic in how we think about youth because they're humans and humans are dynamic. So it's there's no prerequisite for trauma. It's just to say that let's not let's not assume that negative life experiences only can provide us with this this sort of diagnosis for a really jacked up adulthood, right? Meanwhile, there are plenty of other folks who who are struggling in similar ways who don't have this super horrible story. And again, that's why I think the word trauma just has us really off track in what we're assuming and thinking about 
So hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, I think it did perfectly. I appreciate that response. And I love you talking about youth as being like dynamic and the experiences of a, like our experiences being dynamic. Mm-hmm. I know um, we've had for the podcast, we've had conversations with young people um, and they'll be in an episode this season too. And one of the things they kept saying was that we're all different people yes. and we're all going to like respond differently and yes. we all need different things. And I think what you're saying is like very similar and we should be looking at trauma in like the same or difficult life experiences, life experiences in the exact same way. And how can we remember that? We can remember that because as adults, we're also all different people. I think, you know, you get to be an adult and, you know, you get really good at fitting in all these boxes you have to get into to be an adult and we forget. And so we lose sight, I think, ourselves of who we are and our differences and I think, you know, sometimes over time, adulting (laughs) causes us to sort of water down who we are. And so this can also be inspiring to us. And this is sort of circling back to my point about, you know, we are youth workers and mentors are like so passionate about youth having the best outcomes ever. But why aren't we as passionate about ourselves having our our best outcomes ever, right? We, many of us are are not. We're we're doing the same thing we've been doing for the last fifteen years because we've kind of gotten comfortable and we don't like change, so we're just doing it. You know, where we've stayed in the same city and never moved away because we're we don't like change and we're scared to jump out there. You know what I mean? So it's like we've settled in, oftentimes settling. And so, um, but yet we're so inspired for them. And, and that's why I say uh, my hope in, in a movement I'm working on and in, in specific, specifically with helping professionals is to redefine what it means to be a helping professional, human service worker, mentor, whatever, because this whole thing where we just are focused on youth outcomes only, uh, you know, we start dancing with martyrdom first of all. Second of all, let's be honest. You think that youth don't see the depression and unhappiness on your face while you're over there trying to push them to be the best they can ever be? They see you, right? And so the best thing I think we can do for them is live our best lives so that they can see what it looks like to live their best lives. And I think so many of us are just beaten up by life. We're not inspired. And then we're just pushing for them you know, we want them to, we want them to manage their money well. And then we're living check to check. Hello? (laughs) You know what I mean? We want to see them happy, but we've been in a a really crap marriage for 20 years and we've just sort of submitted to it. And we're not thinking about potentially, you know, making some moves that would be better for us and really our whole family. You know what I mean? So I, I think kind of disrupting this rut that we've fallen into generally as adults and then specifically as helping professionals is important. Um, and, 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 you know, I love youth centered work because you sit down with the youth for a minute. And this is what mentors always say. I learned as much as I taught, right. I was inspired. And so, you know, I think there's an opportunity for us to think about how can we become what we want to see for them. And it's not too late for any of us to do that as well. 
I know you said you that some of your work right now is helping helping professionals. Um, what does that look like, or what have you been like doing? Do you have any examples? Yeah, I mean, it, it's really a lot of what I just talked about. So we have a a, a an online community for professionals, leaders, and business owners to, again, disrupt this concept of professional development. And this really is that professional development has historically just focused only on our our career-specific skills, right? Um, Which aligns with this world we all grew up in that really very much values career and pretty much ignores our human reality outside of career, right? So... But yet the research shows that when you are physically healthy, spiritually healthy, emotionally healthy, and all of the others, right, you do better in your career. But unique to helping professionals, uh, youth workers and and human service workers is that for most folks in that space, we're going to define success as helping as many people as we can until we die. and. We really are uh, unconcerned about what that means for us. And there's a lot of guilt in that because we look at folks who have it harder than us, right? Whether it's folks living in poverty or young people who are, you know, maybe removed from their homes because of child abuse or whatnot, right? And we're like, how could I sit here and think about my own well-being when all of these people have it worse than I, right? And so we just... We just show up with such passion that it becomes imbalanced, right? And and so if we're honest, we have a whole profession of super unhealthy people out here doing the good work. And again, that's why I present this concept of martyrdom. We would never say, you know, we're martyrs, but I mean, where's the line between uh, martyrdom and passionate caring, kind people. And so when I think about it, and and I did a lot of work with Black helping professionals, and we had a program that we're just wrapping up for two years during uh, COVID and the height of the Black Lives Matter movement. And our whole thing was self-care is an act of resistance, right? And so let's be careful because what is a movement all about? Whether we're talking about black lives or we're talking about youth or whatever, we're all ultimately saying we want the world to be good. We want the people in it to be good. We want everyone to be happy and well. And so if we are foregoing our own happiness and well-being, are we facilitating a movement? Are we changing the world if we ourselves are not showing up as a glowing light, right? So for me, you know, I used to be that way. So I'm not sitting here judgmental. (laughs) I used to be that way. And I would be stressed and I would be crying at times because I'm like, oh my God, if I don't do this, then someone's going to die or someone's going to not be able to blah, blah, blah. Right. So I'm just feeling all this pressure and and this passionate commitment. Um, And then I came across this quote. um, I tried to carry the weight of the world on my shoulders, but I realized I only had two hands. And for some reason in that moment, it disrupted me. And I, uh, for the first time I was like, okay, I don't, I don't, I don't have to do this. And so I, I went on this journey to eventually getting to the, the mantra I live by now, which is be the light where you are. 
So now I'm not over here literally nearly killing myself because I feel like I'm responsible for changing the world. Because I literally believe with all of my heart for years, right, that that was my responsibility. I'm here. I know I am on this earth to change the world. So I don't do that anymore. I say, I, I know for sure I am here to be a light where I am. So right now I'm here with you on this podcast. So my job is to be a light so that as people hear my voice, they feel inspired, right? They, they, that I brought goodness into the world, their world rather than heaviness, right? But then that I don't have to concern myself with, right, with all the other people, you know what I mean? So it like removed this pressure for me. And allow me to just focus. So if I be the light where I am, that I accomplish the goal, right? And then, okay, think about how many mentors, how many youth workers, how many counselors, how many of us are out there. If we all were truly just being the light, which means you're not running around depressed and sad yet still helping people, okay? <laughs> like you're, you are showing up being and living what you want for others. So you think about, Literally, if you imagine a dark room and and we're all in it and one by one we turn our light on, right? Now there's no darkness because we've all turned our lights on and collectively we change the world, right? So this goes back to that that um, quote, be the change you want to see. And I think some of us get impatient and we feel like, well, that's not enough. You know, we got to do this big thing. Well, there's, there is no, I mean, if that were the case, I think we've gotten there by now. The movement is all of us opting in. And this is what Eckhart Tolle's New Earth is all about, really, is each of us coming to this awakening within ourselves. And as we each do that, more and more of us are showing up as a light in the world. So I think doing that also, again, now we are modeling to youth what it looks like to have a good life, not just hoping for them to go do it. We show them what happiness looks like. We, sh- You know, because a lot of times we're like, we want you to get good grades. We want you to be able to go to school. We want you to be able to get a good job. Why? So they can be miserable like us because all they did was check off the career box, right? Let's let's think about how, what do they need to be happy? And then we don't know because we got to figure out what we need to be happy, right? And so again, it's just a different way of looking at things. And I think in mentoring, so often we get too caught up in the in the measurable outcomes, right, of school, grades, going to college. And then we're not talking to them about being happy and enjoying their life again, because do we know those answers? Do you feel called to join the movement to empower the next generation? Communities and schools of Pittsburgh and Allegheny County is recruiting prospective mentors ages 18 and older to make an impact on middle school mentees in the North Shore region of Pittsburgh Public Schools. By donating 45 minutes of time one day a week, mentees will have the opportunity to engage in life skill building activities with a champion who believes in their potential. Current sites include Allegheny Traditional Academy, Manchester Academic Charter School, King Elementary, Pittsburgh Classical Academy, in Manchester pre-K through eight. Join us, make an impact and make a difference. Interested applicants, please visit our website at cispac.org. So two things, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Joy, that you, you addressed that I think was very important to us and the reason why we dedicated this season around youth mental health and, and youth well-being is one that we all experience difficult situations. Um, so whether that to me in turn for, for individual people is defined as trauma for that individual person or not, we, we all 
experience those difficult situations. And we all just have come out of or still in these difficult situations, especially as it relates to the pandemic, which has come up a lot in our conversation this season. The other thing that you hit on that was important as we you know, geared up for this season was the importance of modeling your own well-being and taking care of yourself, especially in these helping fields. Because like you said, you we, you know, some of us are faking it till we making it and we, we want to see young people do better than we are, but we're struggling. We're, we're looking for the tools and resources to be our best selves and be the light, if you will, um, so that young people have the freedom to exercise um, and be that light. In, in their lives, in their school, in their community, et cetera, and, and really know what that looks like. So thank you for just bringing, bringing that to light in a very transparent way. As you think about your work now and, and just your, your, your most recent research findings, like what do you hope for, I guess your, your, most of your work is centered on high performing individuals, like elite performers. What's your hope for not only the individuals that you work with, but how that in that way to give back in the way that we can model and be mentors for young people, what's your hope that we learn from your findings and how we can continue to apply some of those strategies specifically with working with young people? Well, before I answer that, I want to I want to double click on this word mental health or this term mental health, which I'm personally not a fan of. As a licensed clinician and knowing the history of the clinical counseling world, we the field is very um, antiquated, definitely never going to get an innovation award (laughs) with all due respect. Right. And so we're using terminology and approaches in some cases that were were have been with us from the beginning if 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 you go back to how mental health started and the concepts and the way in which we even do it uh, go about the work like it, we we were serving the most severely mentally ill in residential facilities uh, who who are certainly not in position to just be out wandering in 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 the world and being able to quote unquote be productive, and so I think one of the problems with the term mental health is that we're using the same term to apply to the most severe mentally ill cases in which we're talking that really stereotypical visual of like you're walking down the street and you see someone standing there talking to themselves. You think mental ill, right? We're using that term to describe that person and that reality. And we're using that same term to, 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 to talk about what I would just call life. Like we're maneuvering life, right? Life can be hard. And so I really feel like we've got to start being willing to, to come up with some different language because Think about it. We've been quote unquote trying to break the stigma forever. How are we doing on that? We suck. Okay. The world is not shifting. And so we're not signing up for, we're not showing up to conversations. We're not signing up for potential um, solutions and interventions because that stigma, right, is just too powerful. So in my mind, if after all these years, these stigmatic, 
monetization really hasn't worked. Let's, let's try something else. And I think we need to be thinking about using different language to talk through this. And, and, and I say that not just for youth, but I say that for elite performers that, that folks aren't showing up to a mental health conversation uh, just based on the stigma that comes with it. So we, we talk about in the Joy Society, we serve the worried well. The worried well. You got stuff. It would behoove you to maybe be able to vent. It would be helpful for you to maybe learn some strategies. But do you necessarily need to go get diagnosed, go through a tr- developing a treatment plan, tell somebody your whole life story, all the things that happen in a quote-unquote counseling setting in order for you to get some relief? No, right? And so that's why we designed the Joy Society the way we did. It's because there's really nothing for folks who are, you're either hashtag unbothered, which I want to meet you if you are, because that means hell, you know something I don't know, because life's still hard, right? Or you're like really needing significant support, right? And no judgment on any of it. But what about in the middle, like worried? Well, like, you know, life's hard for me right now. You know, I, 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 it'd just be nice to be able to just vent, or it'd be nice to kind of like think about how I might be able to go about this or that differently. Um, so that maybe I can get some relief here, right? So that's why we designed the Joy Society the way we did is to say, for those who may not need that level of clinical support, let's do this, let's, let's, let's do this thing where we can do educational things, we can do some helpful things, we can have helpful conversations, we can learn some things without necessarily having to go down that road. And I think again with youth, we're saying youth mental health, and then and then we're starting to see like with in some cases, we've gone so far with this. Now everyone thinks they're freaking losing it because we've gone so hard on this mental health language and everybody needs help. Then now everybody thinks they really need, you know, and then now we're freaking out in like an extreme way. So I think we need to be more balanced in how we think about and talk about this. And again, I think we can get a little bit too over the top in how we respond for ourselves and for you. So I wanted to first just call that out because I just think we're missing a lot there. And again, there's so many people who are just either not going to show up because of the language we're using, or we got folks who are really thinking they're worse off than they are because they've bought into this dialogue so much, right? That they've taken it and, and, you know, again, almost self-diagnosed to the point where they think they're not able to see their own strengths, right? And and not able to, to accurately assess where they are. So I wanted to start by just saying that. Okay, so then that's it. Okay, so the other reason, the, the hope behind my work and what I do, and I'm, you know, the the pandemic and all the other things that piled on during the last two years, right? It's been hard and I honor all the lives that were lost and altered in many ways, but always, always, always great things are born in the midst of a struggle. And so I'm so thankful for one of the things that was born during this difficult last few years in, in this world is that we do have folks really paying attention to themselves and their own personal realities more than they ever have. Right. Oh, okay. I, I, I'm, I'm worried. Well, I might not even be as much. Well, like I'm worried, (laughs) you know what I mean? And so I'm so thankful that we are in the midst of a movement 
where folks are thinking about that for themselves and folks are activating. So in the business world, um, specifically, the nonprofit is a whole nother animal. I won't even go there today. But <laughs> we're in this space where you have this great resignation going on. And that's that's happening across the industries. But if you look at the research on the why behind the great resignation, it has to do with folks feeling disrespected, unappreciated, and having a desire to be working in a space where their humanity is honored, right? And they no longer have to leave their actual whole real self at the door in this old school boomer way, shout out to all my boomers, I love y'all, where work and personal are separate. Because newsflash, there's only one of you. So all of you comes to work with you every day, right? And so the reason that I'm doing the work that I am, and and to be clear, specifically the one-on-one coaching I do is with elite performers, but the Joy Society is focused on the worried well. So your everyday helping professional, your your up and coming leader in a corporation, right? Business owners and whatnot. And so the center of everything I do is about redefining and reimagining success because historically success has been defined as strong career and financials, right? And so doing the work that I do and living the life that I live, I know that you can reach all the career goals you want and all the financial goals you want and be one of the most miserable people in the world, right? And so we see, and that it, it they, they don't talk about it for very long, but we see the very sad stories of suicide among celebrities and executives. There was just a, a Fortune 500 CEO who took his own life in the past three or four months. So my passion and and the purpose behind everything I do is that we redefine and reimagine success as something that's more holistic. And in doing that, that brings us full circle to where we started, right? So we no longer as mentors are looking at youth and saying, let's focus on those grades. Let's make sure you get into college. Let's, you know, graduate and not be also talking to them about how happy they are and how physically healthy they are and how spiritually healthy they are and how relationally healthy they are, right? But why don't we talk about that? Because we're not living holistically successful lives. And so one of the reasons that I shifted from positioning myself within the nonprofit world and shifted over into the space that I'm in now is that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working with folks who are, who influence greatly what we think and what we do and how we operate in this world. And so my thought was that if I can convince corporations who are very powerful and elite performers, leaders, celebrities, right, to buy into this, this success reimagined thing where we're, we're aspiring for holistic success, then that will trickle down to everyone else, right? But this is again why I challenge us to, as mentors and or youth leaders and nonprofit leaders, live it, live holistic success 
start to disrupt how you show up to your operation. If your mission is only to serve and you ignore your staff, you ain't trauma informed because go look at SAMHSA's definition. It very much clearly states a trauma informed organization would be one in which the staff, including executives, would also be honored and have space for their human reality to be honored, right? So I think, be it in the nonprofit world or elsewhere, we can, we can we can get to a better world when we all opt into being real with ourselves about who we are and where we are and having the courage to aspire for holistic well-being and success ourselves. And again, especially with helpers and mentors, let us stop this thing where we pridefully give everything we've got to youth and to those we clients we serve and completely ignore our own reality, our own mental health, our own spiritual health, our own physical health as, as some sort of solution. I, it's just horrible that that is our norm. And so I'm coming for <laughs> all helping professionals, all human service workers everywhere to disrupt because this is at the essence of our identity and it is broken, right? And so if we change that and now we start showing up different, we'll automatically see better youth because we're going to show up better than them. We're going to harm them less, which newsflash, if you think you haven't harmed a youth because you, you know what I mean? Just because you haven't cussed them out or something like you. And when I say harm, I don't mean that in a literal sense, but I'm just saying like, are you truly being fully helpful when you, we show up with a funky attitude often because you've allowed life to get to you and you don't quite have an internal locus of control, but you're trying to help them, you know, process it first and don't get angry. And then you, <laughs> you over here ready to take somebody's head off. You know what I mean? Like we're, we've got to live it and we have to believe that we deserve to live it. And, and that's my hope, especially for, for mentors and, and helping professionals. Let's disrupt and, and, and just shift how we see this to say we deserve it as much as they do. And if we live it, there's no question they'll get better outcomes because how could they not? We're showing them exactly what it looks like. Just a couple of things I want to say, and, but <laughs> and listening to you share a couple of things for me, and I do not use Twitter. I'm like, man, there's a few tweetable moments there. So it gave me an idea, like some things you said that I really want to pull out and capture because I think it really hits home just too based on some of the other conversations that we have. Um, but thank you for sharing sharing that hope. And I'll be sure and listening back to kind of pull some of those out because I really do want to elevate those, um, especially as we as we kick off this episode for sure. But thank you for the thoroughness in your response, the work that you do, the passion that you bring, the willingness to challenge status quo, right? And us to think about things differently. That worried well really resonated with me because I think because there is such a stigma and it makes me think about mentoring, but in a different light, like that word does not resonate with everybody and it, it's defined differently. But when you do say mental health, how, however that's interpreted on the individual, not thinking of like overall health and well-being, if it's, if we already think of it as kind of the media portrays it, 
Um, or as you were describing, like if we automatically go to someone who's talking to themselves on the street, you're right. Nobody's showing up to that conversation. And all we're hoping to do is create space to let people feel that they can begin to share tough, tough times, tough days, right? These difficult experiences and talk and walk and work through them. And that's what we're hoping mentors do for young people is to show up, to create space, to model and be able to take ownership on days where we're like, this isn't my best day either. Because if we can just say that some days, like I didn't show up today and my, you know, I'm not a 10 today, you know, I might be a five. Like if we can explain that, then young people will say, oh, well, that's not the expectation for me is to come and be this cookie cutter way. So you, I mean, yes. exactly. Yes. And be perfect. Cause they start to feel like you want me to be perfect and you never show any of your weaknesses. So, or, or you never disclose any of your failures, you know, or disclose that you, you were at work today and you kind of a little bit kind of lost it. And you had to go apologize to a peer because you um, were a little, you know, a little off. We don't want to tell them that because we don't, you know, and like, no, you need to be real with them so that they can see what humanity looks like. And that, so, I mean, and again, for them, they're, they're, they're growing up in an area of social media where they're already seeing perfect everything. So without you showing up that way, they're over here like, oh my God. I need to be like this, right? And so the youth that I've talked to, the pressure is unreal. So being able to see an adult show up as an imperfect human who's also learning and growing, right? Who can teach this, but can say, and I'm still working on it, even though I could teach you about it. That's so much more inspiring for them. It it gives them a starting point. I think it's, it it also normalizes that like, what are we even saying? Because I think we, we, we know what we say, but we don't realize what we're not saying and unintentionally conveying through what we didn't necessarily say, if that makes sense. Stay inspired. Stay inspired. Stay inspired. For this episode, Stay Inspired, we wanted to hear a little bit more from Dr. Joy. At the end of our conversation together, we asked her if she had any strategies or takeaways for people, something that they could do in their own lives. And here's what she had to say. First of all, when it comes to like suggestions, I'll start by this. And if you get coached by me, you know, I'm a love on you and I'm gonna come for you (laughs) because uh, we need disruption. If you're at a place where you're looking for better, that means something needs to change. And so the first advice I'll give is check yourself because this isn't the first time you've heard something super inspiring and you thought to yourself, oh, I really, that, I'm going to start. And then what did you do? Nothing, right? People go to church every week and are here. I mean, you hear the word and you're like, oh my God. And then by the time you get home, you're tired, you eat, then you get back to work Monday, nothing is done to activate anything, right? We do it at conferences. Go to conference, you're like, ah! and and I and I call people out every time I present. Can I get a copy of your PowerPoint? No, because you're not going to use it, right? Why? So it can sit in your e- e- inbox as something you're going to come back to. No, right? So first and foremost, this requires absolute self disruption. And how do you do that? In the simplest form, you figure out 
and you got to figure out what's right for you, be it daily. Don't do too much because that's the other thing we do. We go ham like, oh my God, a new thing. Now I'm going to work out every single day for the next 30 days. Mm, Automatic failure because you try to do too much, right? Instead of incrementally moving yourself along. So even if it's that you put a calendar invite that comes up once a week for 30 minutes that you just pause and think about reimagining success for yourself, right? Just to start facilitating new thinking within yourself. That's just step number one, because there's a million resources out here. Do we use them? right? How many books have you bought that you haven't read or you read them 10 years ago and you were kind of on it for a minute, then you fell off, right? So this starts with just the discipline, uh, the self-disruption followed by discipline of maintaining a regular cadence of check-in for yourself to say, I want to start doing something different. And you have to show up with some accountability for yourself. So uh, again, a simple suggestion would be that once a week, you just pause for 30 minutes, reflect back on your notes from from what we talked about today. Um, And then maybe after you do that for a little bit, maybe you start reading a book or something, right? But don't, don't do too much. Just make a commitment that you're going to bring this to your own attention regularly so that it can start becoming part of your life, that it can take life, you know, a seed that is planted and starts to grow within you. And, and, and if you feel good now, and if you don't intentionally make yourself bring this aha back to your, to your mind, right. And to the forefront, then, then it's just a really awesome, warm and fuzzy moment that dies because right after this, you got to hurry up and get to that meeting and go pick up the kids and blah, blah, blah. And now you are literally going back to the life that you were living before. So you've got to make a commitment, right? Let's disrupt ourselves by including ourselves on the list of people we think deserve the best of life. Mentor Chat is written and hosted by Michelle Thomas and Ashley Wineland with the mentoring partnership of Southwestern Pennsylvania. It is produced by Pretty Easy Podcasts. Our music is Cheery Monday by Kevin MacLeod. Special thank yous to Kristen Allen and the mentoring partnership team. Thank you to our guests. For more information about us, mentoring, and this episode's topics, take a look at the show notes and visit the mentoring partnerships website at www.mentoringpittsburgh.org. Be sure to like and subscribe to Mentor Chat wherever you get your podcasts.